I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right, welcome back to Brooko Mode for episode 29. In this episode, I'm joined by my pop and we'll be going over some of his experiences, some of his values, some of his perspectives on life that are so valuable because at the end of the day, I'm only 22 and he's 85. He's lived an amazing life. He's such an incredible human being and it'll be sort of great to get insight into his perspective and so yeah thanks for coming on pop no worries welcome so i just read a book tuesdays with murray and it was about this this man who's living a life and it wasn't really the way you should live a life in the sense that he was chasing money fame reputation all of these external things do you think there's something wrong with living a life that's chasing money and reputation? I think on life's journey, at different stages, you have different objectives, different needs, and they change as the years go on. At the beginning, you're probably looking for enjoying yourself with sport and your friends, etc. But then when you go say in my stage, the age of 20, I met your grandmother, Val, and I took on a different perspective. I realised that I had to uh, support a family and hence for quite some time, my goals, I reckon, were possibly to just raise a family, enjoy the kids and enjoy life. And as I got older, things changed again. My children, including your mum, Debbie, your uncle Mark and David, as they grew older and got married, life changed again. Responsibilities were not as much as they were when they were younger. So perspective in life, as one grows older, starts to change. And... For some time, in my 50s and early 60s, 
life was one where one could enjoy it a lot more, your children were happy, but then, as you know, your grandmother Val died when she was only 60 years and one month, and hence again, my perspective on life changed, and I now became a grandfather and a grandmother. So roles change depending upon different people's um, journeys in life. When you were in your early 20s, did you have big dreams, goals and aspirations or were you happy to live a, a contentful life, uh, a life that wasn't about chasing big things but enjoying all the, you know, the small things that you have and having a good family and a, and a purposeful life with your teaching? Yes, I think perhaps on the whole... I had a very fortunate life and I was content possibly because having come through World War II as a child, things were different in my era growing up and you were content if you just had a roof over your head, clothes, loving parents and obviously in my case sought an education in order to support a family. So my bringing up in my era compared to my own children, they never saw war. And hence their lifestyle, if you like to call it that, was based upon something completely different to mine, which was post-war. I see nowadays... People are so ungrateful for the things we have and all the things we are given in life, like a roof over our head, food on the table, sort of things that you didn't get for granted, you had to fight for. Do you think the reason we aren't as happy is because we don't appreciate those small things and just we don't enjoy living because we're constantly trying to live a, a better life with more material things? That is very possible. But I think I wouldn't blame the younger ones for having that because they did not have the same um, issues I had to do with going to the war, etc. But I wouldn't say I had to fight for it. I think I thought more like working for it. So take us through some of those experiences when you were younger. I remember you telling me when you were about four years old, during some part of the war, you'd have to explain this, where there was a bombing in a, and when you're in a shopping centre. So you're at such a young a age and you were faced with the prospect of death. How did that sort of shape your perception of life and death? At that stage, yes, I wasn't quite four years of old. Four years old when uh, I was in Rangoon when it got bombed. But I had my mum, my elder brothers and sisters and my aunt. And I think at that age, you didn't worry too much about external things because you knew you were safe. And hence, I never... I went through any traumas 
because I was in a loving family with my mum, my siblings, and my dad. So it's a lot different, I think, if one has to go through those things without support and loved ones around them. It could be very traumatic. Do you think having such a a loving and secure family in the face of those greater challenges sort of shaped you as such a family man and sort of sort of influenced your values as a person and thus appreciating the smaller things as a result? Yes, my fa- father and my mother were always very supportive of whether whatever any of us children, and there were seven of us, they're very supportive of what we were striving for. And hence that is why, in my case, your grandmother, Val, and I both felt that with our children, we were supportive of them. And as you know, uh, now that I am a widower, I'm still very supportive of all my children and my grandchildren. When you were younger during that experience and you sort of weren't in a world, I sort of want you to explain to me what life was like when there wasn't social media, when there wasn't this capitalistic world we're in where a lot of us, including myself, it's a, it's a lot of a chase for more. It's a lot of external validation, external chase. What was society like back in your time, from your experience? How did you feel about living a fulfilling life? I think post-war, meaning after 1945, everyone around you had to... Be content, if I li- if you like, with what little things we had. There was rationing of uh, certain foodstuffs. There was ra- rationing of things like even material to make clothes. So you came through in those early post-war years, and I'll say mine, I'll just say from the, about the age of 10 to 20, that you felt content because you were grateful of what you actually had. You worked really hard at school and then to become a teacher for a very long time. What were some of the things that motivated you to get the most out of yourself as a student but then also coming into your teaching career? I always felt that I wanted to give back to society what I felt was given to me through my parents and through society in general. And hence, through teaching, I thought I could help not just a few people, but hundreds of people um, through a long teaching life. In the book, Tuesdays with Murray, there's a passage near the end of the book and it says giving is living and a lot of the books talking near the end about how Maury discovers 
near the end of his life how powerful it is giving back to other people. And I know one of the central themes throughout your whole life has been giving to others, obviously through my own experience. But I guess, has that always been ingrained with you from your parents? And why do you think it is so rewarding to help other people and not just do things for yourself? I think it's self-satisfaction in knowing that you can help people in different ways. The main way I felt I could help people is through education, through teaching, uh, in my case, maths and science, so that my students could themselves then earn a good living through their jobs, whatever their job might be. Is there anything you wish you knew when you were 20 years old that you've learnt through life and life's experiences that would have maybe helped you in any way for, for your life? I met your grandmother when I was 20. I was in national service and from the time I met her, I don't think I wanted for anything in life except just to have a... Um, a family and to provide for them so there's nothing in retrospect in my life that I wish was any different not that it's about regrets but is there anything you wish you knew about how to live or are you so content with the, the life that you had that you wouldn't want to tell yourself anything. Because if I wanted to, if I was back when I was 15, I wish I could tell myself so many things, but it's like it shapes, though everything that happened to you shaped who you were. So in some way it almost, you almost can't have the person you are now if you want to change things in the past and go back and tell yourself things because it's sort of like the butterfly effect? When I was younger, I guess my parents, who were very supportive, but at the same time, they would give advice in order to help me, I guess, live a better life. And once I was 20 and met your grandmother, then wasn't my parents, it was my wife who was a very quiet person, very intelligent and whenever she spoke, people listened to her and so did I. So I guess gradually I got a slightly different perspective of life which was one that was to be um, listen more and also to be content with what you've got. Now, you met Nana Val at about 20, that's right? Yes. And then you were very content to live a modest, loving, supporting life for your kids. What, so obviously love... And having that supportive life 
was a central theme on your journey. So what is love to you and, and why is it so powerful in living the content life that you had? Yes, there are many definitions of, of love. And I think the one that is best applicable to me is just you want to be with that person the best of your life. Just to be with that person. In terms of my wife. With my children, it's a different kind of love. It's, it's one of always being there to support them and to help them to become independent adults. Nowadays, there's so much... This, the d- divorce rates are so high. There's so much um, conflict in relationships. Do you think, know why there's so much um, difficulty in sustaining relationships now versus sort of a life that you had and maybe some people around you? Yes, interesting question, that. Um it's always difficult to walk in someone else's shoes. So I'm always very reluctant where family members or very close friends, etc., when very good people, but later in life, a lot of them want to pursue different things. So I've always been grateful for my own love of my wife and been understanding that other people may not have the same um, outlook of life or things change for them. So I always try to find the positives even when friends of mine, relatives, divorce. So then... If you don't want to sort of comment on others, then so what do you believe were the secrets to, or not even the secrets, but what do you think made your marriage so happy and contentful and joyful um, for the 40 years? Communicating and listening and through that, agreeing upon what we really wanted going forward. And by discussing that, then when you do go forward, it is done through communication and listening. And hence, if you're both on the same path, then your journey is a lot easier. Your journey is also uh, full of love. Now you were sort of, you say the word fortunate, but you had your teaching career and you sort of discovered your passion and purpose to help others very on. A lot of people in life are a bit lost and they're not really happy with themselves. There's a lot of insecure people out in the world. What would be your best advice to help others navigate these challenging times and sort of discover some purpose in living life? I guess I am loath to give advice as such. But 
I'd rather say, if asked, I would then discuss different options. Options that the person who I'm talking to about things can then make their own decision on. Though I may occasionally, as you know, try to give a little bit more than just options. I try sometimes to do, give a bit more advice or guidance is the word I prefer. So do you have... Okay, so you've obviously... You've lived a lot of life. You've, ex- you've gone through death, marriage, um, the struggles of everyday life. What did you do to overcome life's inevitable adversities? Many things. One is trying always to look at the positive. I know it's an old cliche to say that every cloud has a silver lining. But I think you need to try to look at the positives and if some are seen as negatives, try to see how you can in future avoid those negative aspects if possible. And I keep on coming back to the word content. I think I was overall pretty much content with with life and still am. But how does how does one find contentment? Is it through the appreciation of the small things? Is it because society has shaped us in a way where we're we're constantly given these temptations and the the lucrative promises of living a more externally rewarding life with money, reputation, jobs, career, instead of pushing purpose, contentment, relationships, internal growth. Does one need to find a way to appreciate the little things more to to get that contentment that you're the word you keep coming back to? Yes, and look, I was quite happy, pleased when, in fact, acknowledgement was given to me, whether it be in the academic sense or sport, but I didn't seek it, but I acknowledged it and appreciated it. And that together with um, a loving family, I think, add together to make up Yep, I'm content. We talked about relationships. How important do you think forgiveness is in, in relationships? I think forgiveness, when it's genuine, is most important. And I also think that the receiver of forgiveness ought to, should, appreciate that they have been forgiven genuinely do you think in modern relationships there's there's too much expectation placed on 
on on people and instead of treating people independently and giving them the respect that they deserve once in a relationship it almost turns to expectations of oh they should do that they should do this instead of being grateful and and loving for things that they do provide us with is that how you see some of the contentment that you got because of the way you shaped your appreciation for the things Val did rather than yes. expecting it? I still think that communication and listening is perhaps the most important, and I wouldn't call it a skill, because skills you normally practice, but I think a practice to get better at, but I think uh, communicating and listening should be something that, if not taken for granted, we ought to understand and then apply that to our life, communicating and listening. But I do think it is a skill in the sense that it's can be developed and improved upon through practice because people in people in a in the communication sense aren't good at listening and there's so many ways that we can become better listeners and I think I categorize listening and communication as a skill if you're defining a skill by its capacity to be improved through practice. Yes, I agree with that. I guess when I earlier said it's not a skill, I was thinking, yep, you're right, it's something you can practice. But I guess with age it became so natural that I might have forgotten I had to practice it. Yeah, I think once you get to a certain point, it's you don't consciously think of think of it. You just it's just something that you do, it's just listen to others. Yes, I, I think that's the case there where where yes, I learnt early to communicate and listen. And I guess it was a, a skill because I worked on it, but in later life it became just part of you that that's why I earlier said it isn't a skill, but you redefined it or defined it. And yeah, I agree. But I think now um, it just becomes natural. Has there ever been a time when you get older or ha- you can just answer this however you want that you've been scared of dying? No, I've never been scared of dying and none of my close relatives were either. And in fact, I was only talking today to one of my sisters who's 89 and I was telling her how when I went and saw a brother who was diagnosed with cancer didn't have much longer to live and he said to me and my elder sister because at that time my wife had died and with my elder sister I drove her to visit my brother and he said to us when we were leaving he said, I'm looking forward to dying. I want to see what's the other side. 
and there was not a family member, not not afraid of dying, but he was always inquisitive. He said, "I want to know." In fact, he said to said to um, my sister and I, uh, "I'll come back and let you know what it's like there." And only today we were laughing and saying, "But he hasn't come back yet." <laughs> oh, he hasn't come back in a way that you can see his you, physical embodiment. Well, well said. Yes, I I agree. Yep, yep. But. Has it was there ever a time in your life that you remember being scared of death or having any existential overthinking or existential crisis where you sort of question like, okay, what what am I actually here for? What is what am I just this walking body on a spinning planet? Like, has those thoughts ever come across your mind in your eighty five years? No, because I am a practicing Catholic, and I do believe that. There is a life hereafter. Uh, your body, when you die, deteriorates, but I still think your soul or your conscience lives on. But do you think you have conscious? Do you think you have consciousness slash awareness of that? So, do you think that, like the Alistair Peacock, the whole life you've created, do you think you'll be when you die, you will remember that in some afterlife? A good question, actually, because your grandmother, Val, was a wide reader and she studied every religion in depth. And at one stage, she had come across and read, and we talked about it, about reincarnation. And to a certain extent... I keep options open as to what happens when you die. I do believe you live thereafter. But I also suspect from certain incidents I know of that reincarnation is something, is an option that I think we ought to consider. But do you think some atheists, some people existentialists, a lot of people propose that sometimes in religion the belief of an afterlife is almost just to comfort our sort of irrelevance in the grand scheme of things and to give us comfort in the fact that we promise an afterlife almost to take away the pain of having to know that once one in the f- some distant future we're going to be nothing. Yes, I, I completely agree with those people who say it's like a crutch. It's something to look, f- uh, to think that you're not going to any longer exist. And I accept that viewpoint from atheists, uh, from non-believers. And I understand them thinking that those who believe in an afterlife are probably uh, just trying to comfort themselves that... Uh, their soul, their conscience, will live on. Is it important to you to be remembered and have a legacy, in a sense? Interesting question. A legacy. I I think my legacy is my three kids and my grandkids. That, to me, is a legacy. Nothing to do with uh, my sporting or academic achievements. My legacy, to me, 
it's just my children and grandchildren. So you believe it's the impact you've had on others rather than any sort of achievement that inherently is arbitrary and meaningless in the grand scheme, rather it's your positive impact on your loved ones. Yes, but I do know from feedback that I've had from ex-students that when I've met them again after many years, in fact, very recently, I caught up with students I taught 60 years ago and had never seen them since we got together. And yes, it was good to see they appreciated and thanked me for what I had taught them. And, but that's not to me, in a way, just to be appreciated as a legacy. Circling back to an earlier thing we spoke about, now we're talking about death. Now in the book, Tuesdays with Murray, there's, there's sort of talk in in some point about how you can only learn to live when you learn to die in the sense that once you accept your inevitable fatality and sort of the fact that you're not going to be here forever and you come to true, genuine internal acceptance with that, only then can you sort of live a life that's meaningful and you can appreciate appreciate the value of just living because you've accepted death rather than living life in the fear of not being around. Interesting. And it may be that because of my upbringing and being a Catholic and believing in an afterlife, that perhaps from a young age then, um, death was never something to fear and therefore you lived happily because you weren't afraid of death. But I agree with that in the sense that we shouldn't be afraid of death. It's a natural part of this world. But how do we... You might not, you might not have the answer here, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Then how do we help or how do we look at death now if we haven't been raised that way? What happens if we're 20, 30, 40 years old and having existential crisis we're worried about not living anymore is there a way out or is it because we weren't brought up in a way that sort of looked at death in that way that we can't escape those thoughts yes in my experience and obviously i have had a lot of deaths relatives friends and what was very obvious to me, we all grieve in different ways. There are some who accept it very early and there are some who take a long time to grieve and hence debt is something I think 
um, those of us who are alive when the person dies uh, grieve in different ways. So you've been to a lot of funerals, I'm imagining. At funerals, do they speak about the person they were and the impact they had on others rather than external achievements, their job, everything that they people chase nowadays? But from your experience and at the end of these people's lives, in grand reflection, it's not what they were, it's who they were. Yes. I've given quite a few eulogies. My brothers, my sisters, friends. And in the eulogies, what I spoke about was the friendship and the love that person had been deceased and myself, what we had. And as I recall it now, I don't think I ever mentioned any great achievement academically or sporting, etc. It was always um, the interesting lives that I had had living and knowing that person. So it was really talking about that person as a person rather than some legend, sporting person, etc. Because I considered, regardless of your sporting or academic achievements, um, people are people. And that's the thing that I find I like to respect and talk about. So... I think I would know your take on this, but there's a sort of a quote where it says, heroes and villains have the same backstory. It's pain, but it's what they choose to do with it. So heroes experience pain and they say, the world has put pain onto me. I don't want anyone to feel this way. So they want to protect people from ever experiencing what they had to go through whereas villains are used by pain because they experience pain, they have a victim mentality and they want to inflict that on other people. Heroes heroes protect others from the pain they experience, whereas um, villains are used by pain. So do you believe that all people are born good and we, whether from a harsh upbringing, obviously you had a very supportive upbringing, but people have a hard upbringing, People have a lot of life's challenges, heartbreak, financial failure, bullying, all these hard things that are inflicted on people. And then they have this pain and it's how and it's how they feel about themselves after that and how they go about it that makes them the not so good people that we see sometimes. Yes, it's interesting. I think it was Rousseau, the educator, who said that all children are born good. And I believe that. I always, uh, and I'll go back to my students mainly, I always try to find the good in them. Some of them were perhaps villains, you know. But when you start talking to them, communicating, listening, you find they are just kids who, for whatever reason, um, are behaving in what one would refer to as not the way 
that one would expect them to behave respectful, etc. So, yes, I guess I may be naive, but I like to see the good in everyone, but not ignore the bad or the evil, not to ignore it, but to see the good part of it. There's a quote somewhere, I'm not going to quote it, but it's like, up close, everyone, it, everything makes sense. Like, if you really get to know someone and their story, the person you see makes a lot of sense. And then it sort of removes that judgment that you have of people. Is yes. it? Do you think the fact that almost because society is expanding so much, there's so many people... We're losing a lot of the deeper connections. Everything's becoming more surface-level reputation. Because we don't know each other so well, do you reckon that almost feeds into the into this problem? Interesting, because I've always been interested in politics. I still uh, watch Question Time, Insiders, 7.30, etc. And at this present time, every Tuesday, there is person named Annabel Crabb and she has on one and one and it's called I think um, Kitchen Table or Kitchen Talk and I have seen four prominent politicians who I see performing in Parliament at Question Time who I read about, see etc and the completely different uh, side I see of them when they are sitting in a kitchen talking to Annabel Crabb about their life. And things I think I never knew. So, yes, you, you do see a different side of people, completely different. And I was only talking very recently to one of my, my sisters about it, that... Um, a complete different side where I best describe it as John Walsfall. Once he crossed the line and went to the football field, he did what he had to do to win games. But once he crossed the line and came off there, he was a different person, different personality, quiet chap. And this is what I saw with the four recent politicians that quite surprised me uh, listening to them as opposed to what I saw and heard them say in Parliament. Yeah. I'm interested in, you know how I do a lot of, I'm in this mental health, mindset, motivation, whatever you want to call it, sort of sphere. Um, And that's sort of my pathway going forward. Was this ever discussed back when you were growing up? Was, Was it ever a thing and... Did anyone talk about this sort of stuff? Anything to do with mindset, motivation, purpose, like all the stuff that you see, or is it a byproduct of sort of the mental health? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't call it. Oh, yeah, I guess you can mental health crisis and like the social media and all that sort of thing. Good point. I go back to one of the. 15-year-old boys I had in my class back in 19... I've got to get the year right. I think it was 1970. And 
I wish I'd known about um, self-mutilation. I would walk the class and help them with their work and I never recognised that he was injuring himself because he had these, what I now know were blader, uh, a razor blade cuts on his hand. And when I became, when I was lecturing to student teachers at uni much later in life, I did always mention to them that when they walk into a classroom, remember they have 30, 35, 40 students, all individuals, all have their own, um, if you like, uh, lifestyles they've come from. And to say to my student teachers, to leave their own personal baggage at home. And I do sometimes say, if you suspect that a student, and I didn't use the word suicide, it wasn't used much, they was having troubles, then talk to someone more senior um, who would then direct and talk to the student, etc. So in other words... Don't look upon them as just um, numbers. They are all individuals. What do you think about... Do you remember much about what the perception and what the expectations were for men in sort of the, the 20th century? And nowadays there's, such a, there's still a bit of a stigma, but there's so much more awareness and support for men's mental health versus sort of like, the periods that you were growing up where there was like expectations or the gender stereotypes of women to be the emotional nurturing ones and men to be the strong, assertive alpha males who never cried. What did what was your experience like with that? Yes, definitely in my younger days. Now, what were my younger days? Let's refer to them as the early, the late 40s and the early 50s. There was no doubt society thought the man was the bread earner, the woman stayed at home and looked after the children. And the man was supposed to be strong, yes, and you don't cry. And that was sort of a stereotype that has definitely changed, I guess, as... Academics, particularly in the area of psychology, have shown that there is, there is a different um, aspect for men. They can cry. I've cried. I still, when I watch a show, if someone even does a kind act, I, f I, I feel tearful. Because I feel tearful that they've done something kind. Did you ever feel like in your life you had to regulate your emotions in a socially acceptable way for a man? That you couldn't, in a, in a certain situation, you had to be someone that you weren't really, you didn't really want to be because you just felt it was inappropriate for the expectations of a man? No, I, th I think I always felt that 
what you saw in me was me, though I must admit there were times I might have tempered slightly uh, so as not to offend people or not to show disrespect to older or senior people. But I would like to think that what you saw is what you got. Now, I have a big thing on my show about vulnerability and having deeper conversations was because obviously I was not around. Did people, were relationships and when people had discussions, when people came over, did people talk about meaningful things and deeper things like death, purpose, what they want to get out of life, what their goals are? Or was it all just like, oh, what little Johnny is doing at his little sports carnival? Or were there like serious deep chats and has that changed over time at all? I can only speak for obviously my own experience, but yes, um, we did. We meaning my family, we did sometimes get into deeper uh, philosophical discussions. And I can recall very vividly after my wife died, my brother's wife had died, and the two of us used to meet regularly with my elder sister and her husband, and we used to talk a lot about um, philosophical things, like even different religions, life after death, and so forth. But that was much later in life. Uh, but earlier, it was not as intense or as knowledgeable because we didn't have that knowledge to discuss things. But, uh, yep. A lot of people, and you can see it, there's people want to form deeper relationships. People want to live meaningful lives. But we get so caught up in the temptations of life. We get so caught up in our... In, in stuff that just jumps at us and we're very afraid to afraid to have deeper conversations even though there's almost an innate drive to find deeper meaning. What do you think we can do to become more vulnerable and accepting of of life and and having these conversations that are, are should be normal? Interesting because my your grandmother, Val and I, often said we wished we had actually recorded our discussions with her grandmother. Her grandmother was a pioneer of Kalgoorlie and she told us many stories and whilst we remembered them, a lot of them, we wish we'd have recorded it so that we could, um, I guess, more fully listen again and understand it. And talking to her, life was much more simple. It was hard. It didn't have all things like, uh, in her era, motor cars, uh, refrigerators. Um, and 
whilst life was a bit tough, it was a bit easier. Whereas fast forward to today, your era, all the distractions you have, television, mobiles, opportunities to, uh, say, for example, better opportunities to travel and experience. Um, so going forward, oh, sorry, jumping forward to your era, to my grandmother's era, there was a heck of a difference. Coming to my era, I think life was a lot simpler. Sure, I used to have to ride a bicycle to go to sport. What do you do? You hop in a car and you drive there. And that was just accepted. You didn't have a car, so you rode your bike. But I think there are a lot more distractions today uh, for the youth and younger people. Do you think a way out of that then is to simplify our lives in a way that's appreciating the smaller things by not trying to chase so many of these opportunities that are inherently if, meaningless? Well, I wouldn't say they're meaningless. I think there are definitely a lot of advantages. I mean, for example, today, you text me to be careful on the roads when I was going to an appointment because you knew the roads were bad, right? Mm. But coming to my mind, a long time ago, it was in the early 60s, uh, your nana Val and her sister Joyce and Joyce's husband Colin, they went to Bunbury, but I didn't go with them because I had university lectures. And I was very worried at 2 o'clock in the morning when they hadn't come back yet. But there were no telephones very readily available for them to ring me. And what had happened was the, um, the fog was so bad that they crawled all the way from Bunbury to Perth at about five kilometres an hour on the white line on the road. So there's an example, I guess, today. You text me. And I think back where I, I couldn't get the information. So, sure, there are a lot of um, inventions that help people. And if used correctly, they are great. Yeah, definitely agree. All right, I'll probably wrap it up there so it doesn't go on too long. It's just shy of 55 minutes. Anyways, thanks for, thanks for coming on, Pop. No worries, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's good chat and... Um, Excited to share this one. I'm sure after this episode we'll get some feedback and see what is worth exploring more because we sort of touched the surface on a lot of things, but it'll be interesting to see what was um, what was considered valuable insight. But thanks for listening, guys, and I'll um, see you on the episode 30. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.